So this month we're talking about welcome. We started last week by talking about how we might be a people of welcome. We'll continue next week by talking about how welcome can ask us to change. Today, though, I want to take a moment to tell something, to do something a little bit different. I want to just tell a story. This has been uh, a difficult week in the world. It feels like with fires and with earthquakes and with hurricanes that the whole world is groaning. And so I want to take a moment just to tell a story that to me illustrates what that, that poem of Hafiz is about or that Newton was thinking about when he wrote Amazing Grace. He and the, the subject of this story were contemporaries. They, they may have met. We don't know for sure. But the story goes like this. On September 25th, 1770, a ship ran aground on a sandbar just off the shore of New Jersey. Years later, a passenger on that ship described the cause of the accident. A sloop had shot past us, he wrote, and, and we inquired how far we were from our destination. The answer was 70 miles, but we heard seven. And in moments, we were among the breakers. It is with this somewhat inauspicious start that we mark the beginning of the universalist denomination in America. The recorder of that awkward moment of slow motion shipwreck was an Irish preacher named John Murray who was traveling to New York to begin a new life in a new world far away from family tragedy and debt collectors. While the ship was aground in the New Jersey inlet, Murray, along with several other passengers, went ashore to try and find food. In his autobiography written a few years later, Murray describes walking out of the town into the forest to pursue a solitary walk in the woods which seemed to surround this place. My mind was greatly agitated, he writes. I was in the new world, as had appeared so desirable in prospect. Here I was as much along as I could wish, and my heart exclaimed, oh, that I had in this wilderness, the lodging place of a poor wayfaring soul, some cave, some grotto, some place where I might finish my days in calm repose. Murray had married young a decade earlier. In the years before his voyage across the Atlantic, his only child had died in infancy, followed just months later by his wife, Eliza, and then four of his siblings. In the aftermath, he wrote that he was resolved to pass through life unheard, unseen, unknown to all, as if I had never existed. And as he wandered through the woods of New Jersey, we can imagine pondering the events that had brought him there, 
all that he had lost. He came upon a young woman in the forest grilling fish. He offered to buy the fish as the boat he sailed on was low on provisions. I cannot spare any, was the reply. But if you continue down this path, you will find many fish. Sure enough, Murray continued down the path and found a small hamlet with people unloading the day's catch. He approached a man who seemed to be in charge and asked if he could buy some fish for the passengers and crew of the stranded ship. You may not, said the man. Why ever not? You may not, because I will not sell you a fish. I will not take money to feed guests. How many do you need? Thomas Potter, for that was the, the man's name, sent a load of the day's catch to the stranded ship, then turned to Murray and insisted that he stay with the Potters for dinner as a guest of their house. That evening, over what was probably a hearty meal and in a warm home, Potter turned to Murray and said very straightforwardly, I have been waiting for you to show up for years. He explained that while he could neither read nor write, he was a man of faith in love with hearing the good news. He had gone so far as to build a church in the hamlet, but the church did not have a minister. He had tried out several ministers, he explained. But each, to Mr. Potter, had too narrow an understanding of God. To the Baptist ministers, it seemed that God was a Baptist. The Quakers and Presbyterians seemed to think that God had it out to save the Quakers and Presbyterians, respectively. This did not sit particularly well with Mr. Potter, who sent the Presbyterians, the Quakers, and the Baptists on their way, resolving that God would send him a preacher sympathetic to his beliefs, and to him, John Murray was that preacher. John Murray was appalled. <laughs> Murray had began his career as a, a strict Calvinist, preaching and teaching that God had a chosen elect, conveniently, mostly Calvinists, that were destined for salvation, while most were destined for punishment. By 1760, he had moved to London and married, and like many ministers in their early 20s, was full of zeal and a desire to convert the worst of the non-believers in his case, the first generation of English Universalists. The Universalists preached that the very idea of a loving God was incompatible with eternal punishment, that if there was an elect destined for salvation, that elect must be the whole of humanity. Murray set out to convince them of the error of their ways and made arrangements to call on one of the leaders of the local Universalist congregation that had just formed in London. He emerged from that meeting several hours later, soundly defeated and confused. The congregational leader was well-versed in theological argument, and Murray had been quite unable to defend his own beliefs against her skeptical questioning of him. He went home and he wrote in his journal that he resolved to never again have business with the Universalists. <laughs> <laughs> By 
But the conversation must have stayed with him because the young John and Eliza Murray started reading the pamphlets the Universalists were producing. Eliza was the first to convert and brought John with her not long ago, not long after. A decade later, John Murray sat across the table from Mr. Potter, who had just informed him that God had sent the good Reverend Murray to this hamlet in New Jersey, where they needed a universalist to preach on Sunday, this Sunday, <laughs> in five days. And in the, in the time between those two conversations, Murray had lost just about everything in his life. Eliza's family disowned her as soon as they found out that she had become a universalist. Their only child had died. Eliza had died. Four of his brothers and sisters had died. Murray was sent to debtor's prison. And because he had been, they had been disowned by their families, there, it was difficult to get out. He had sailed for New York in a bid to start his life over. He had resolved that he would never, ever preach again. So he told Mr. Potter that while he appreciated the hospitality, my dear sir, you are deceived. Indeed, you are deceived. I shall never preach in this place nor anywhere else. Murray would be sailing on to New York as soon as the wind turned and they were able to free the ship from the sandbar. Potter insisted that, that surely, since there was some hand in these events, the wind would not shift <laughs> until Murray preached from the pulpit Potter had built. And so they eventually agreed over dinner or whatever came after dinner, that if the wind turned before Sunday, Murray would go on to New York. If the wind had not turned and he was still in New Jersey, then he would find it within himself to preach. And you can probably guess how this story ends. The wind did not change. John Murray preached in that New Jersey hamlet, and as the story goes, as he stepped down from the pulpit on Sunday morning, the wind shifted and the <laughs> boat left the sandbar. John Murray did not end up settling in New Jersey. Though he and Thomas Potter probably remained friends, he eventually made his way to Boston, where he helped to found and organize some of the first Universalist churches in America. And in Boston, he married again, this time to Judith Sargent, a champion of religious rights and a, a literary figure in her own right. There's a, a fascinating thing. There was a, an anthology of early Unitarian and Universalist writings published um, this last year. In it, there is one excerpt from John Murray, and there are four from Judith Sargent Murray. Um, but the two of them were married nearly 30 years until John's death in 1815. And by all accounts, they had a loving marriage of mutual respect and esteem. Much of the written material we have of Murray's was published by Judith after his death. They had also both lost their first spouses 
Eliza had died years earlier, and Judith Sargent was a widow. So we can imagine that maybe that also brought them together. Murray is not remembered today for his theological contributions to American Universalism. Even during his lifetimes, his views were considered idiosyncratic by his peers. The, the closest our modern traditions come to the, the beliefs that he espoused is actually probably not in Unitarian Universalism. But there is a, there's a small offshoot of Baptists in the mountains in North Carolina and Tennessee called the Primitive Baptist Universalists. <laughs> they too follow a, a strictly Calvinist interpretation of an elect destined for salvation, but an elect that, that includes all of humankind. In the mountains up there, of course, they don't go by the primitive Baptist universalists. That label comes from sociologists. But to themselves and their neighbors, they are the no-hellers. What John Murray is most remembered for in our tradition is the work he did to build universalism as a distinct movement. When he arrived in New Jersey, universalism was a, a fringe movement, apt to get you disowned by your more orthodox family. Through his organizational work and through the, the Boston Society connections that uh, his second wife's literary career had brought her, he made a space for universalism to be understood as a distinct faith and denomination. He set up churches and networks throughout Massachusetts. He connected those networks to early universalist churches founded in Pennsylvania. And within 10 years of John Murray's death, universalism had become one of the largest denominations in the young United States. At one point in the mid-19th century, there were 40 universalist newspapers published in upstate New York alone. Little towns like Portland, Oneonta, Utica, all had their own universalist newspaper. John Murray and Judith Sargent ensured that universalism would have an institutional home for generations. Murray was also known, lastly, for his humor. There's a story that, of course, he told. So we don't know how much of this story is true and how much of it was him remembering himself well later. <laughs> but the story goes that uh, he was preaching once in Boston. And as he was preaching, um, a brick was thrown through the window of his church in Boston. And it landed right next to the pulpit. And Murray stepped down from the pulpit, picked up the stone, held it out to the congregation, and said, I find this argument solid and weighty. <laughs> but it is neither rational nor convincing. <laughs> he then says he continued where he left off without pausing. I don't know that I could come up with that in the space of time, but 20 years later, if I was writing an autobiography, I might claim that I had thought of that in the moment. 
So this isn't a story with deep theology, but it is a story about welcome. And so as we go forward in this week, let's think about what that story means, where the welcome was in that story. What would have happened with universalism in America if Potter hadn't said, I won't sell you fish. I won't take money from a guest. How do we reflect the best of that story in this institution that has been brought down 200, 237 years after that day in what is now Murray Grove, New Jersey? Our sense of welcome today in contemporary Unitarian Universalism grows out of that first universalist argument, the one that goes, God is not a Presbyterian, not a Baptist, not a Quaker, or any sect, but loves them all, so I will not sell you fish. It is only right then that the founding story of our tradition, one of our two great traditions, is a story about welcoming a heartbroken stranger. May we continue in the best of that tradition. Amen. And now,